Hi, this is Renee T, and this is the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. This episode, we talk to Dr. Randall S. Olson, Senior Data Scientist in the Epistasis Lab, a computational genetics research group in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics at the University of Pennsylvania. Randy and I chat about his blog, which includes posts on optimizing the search for Waldo and Where's Waldo, planning the ultimate road trip, and doing Moneyball-style team creation in Madden NFL game. I think you'll find his projects and his path to becoming a data scientist interesting, and there will be a data science learning club activity based on something we talk about in the interview. So let's meet Randy Olson. Hi, Randy. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you, too. We finally meet in person after connecting on Twitter for a while. <laughs> for, for well over a year now, right? Yeah. yeah. So I'll ask you the same first question I ask everybody. Do you consider yourself to be a data scientist? Uh, yeah, at this point in my career, I would, I would say I consider myself that. I mean, my job title is senior data scientist. I work with data and um, do data science-y things nowadays on a daily basis at work. So yeah, I'd say I consider myself to be a data scientist. Okay. And we're going to go all the way through all of your education and job experience, but let's start from when you were a kid. So was there anything going on when you were a kid that made you um, realize you were more analytical or might go towards this type of role? Um, you know, were you really good at math or science or anything like that as a kid? Um, I, I would say the big thing that stands out from, from my childhood that drove me towards a more, uh, I guess, technical uh, career would be you know, I, I was really fascinated, I think, like most kids in video games. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I just really, really enjoyed the aspect of like leveling characters up, you know, RPGs, things like that. And, um, you know, watching my stats rise. I think that's uh, that was that was a very that was a thing that definitely drew me to, you know, to want to be involved with computers, to analyzing things. You know, I'd always try to figure out how can I game this this video game. Um, you know, to beat the system and get ahead in, in competitive video games, things like that. Um, I wouldn't say I particularly excelled in any particular topic in, in, in school, though. Um, okay. Maybe up until college when I really started to, to find myself, I guess. Okay. And before college, did you take any advanced computer science or math kind of courses, anything like that? Yeah, I did take uh, an AP computer science class um, but just because I knew I wanted to do something with computers. And, but that was basically just um, programming Visual Basic. You know, I remember I wrote one of the worst programs I've ever written in my life in that class that was like converting uh, dates or something like that. And it was I had this huge script of so many if statements um, it was disgusting, but <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, my first programming experience there. Um, so yeah, I definitely knew that I was heading towards a more computer, computer oriented role. Uh, mm -hmm. at that point, I, I never, I, I didn't really know data science existed at that point though. Right. And did you go into computer science in college then? Yeah, I did. Um, it's, a, it's actually kind of funny. I, I fell into computer science though, hmm. um, because, uh, I, I, the original major I wanted to go for was something like computer and information technology or something like that. Like that sounded way more up my alley. Um, but my advisor said, you know, oh no, that's too uh, not simplistic of a topic or something like that for you. You know, they looked at my grades and they're like, no, no, you should definitely go for computer science, um, which turned out to be a really good thing um, because, you know, I was head, 
if I went down that major, I would have gone more IT, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, computer science, I learned to program and all these other really advanced computer science topics. Okay. Do you have any particular memories from undergrad of things that really kind of solidified in your mind that you were on the right track for you? Um, I would say the many countless nights spent programming and genuinely enjoying it, you know, that up until that point, the only thing, other thing that had really kept me up like late at night and enjoying it was video games. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a good sign when I was shutting off my video games to instead spend the night programming. You know, it was really fun trying to figure out all these uh, practice problems and, and challenges that they would give in the computer science classes. You know, really trying to figure out how, um, you know, let's say a compiler works or something like that. You know, I remember I had this one class where we actually had to build a, a compiler ourselves that took some custom programming language and compiled it down into bytecode. And that was really, really fun, you know, like getting deeper into understanding how programs work and, and how computers work. Um, that was really, really neat to me. So that was definitely a sign that I was on the right track at that point. And how did you decide what to do next? Did you go right into grad school or start working? No, I originally thought that programming was going to be my thing, um, uh -huh. you know, because I, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but my last year, I, I actually got really interested in artificial intelligence research. So I did an internship with uh, Professor, Professor Kenneth Stanley uh, at the University of Central Florida. I um, did a year internship with him working on um, some evolutionary algorithm robotics project that was really, really fun. Um, and I had a blast with it. And he sort of convinced me, uh, you know, just to break off from my path and pursue graduate school. Um, I guess he saw a promise in me or something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I thought I'd be perfectly happy programming. Um, so I, I did still want to try out the programming thing, though. So af immediately after um, undergrad, I, I worked for about a year and a half as a programmer, figured out, actually, it wasn't really my gig. You know, I like programming, but maybe not, you know, being like a, a full-time programmer, I guess, you know, developing graphical user interfaces and things like that. This wasn't my thing. Um, so then after that, I decided to pursue grad school um, and I got accepted at Michigan State University. Well, so was it that he had kind of put AI in your mind, he had put that bug in your ear and you kept kind of getting drawn back to that versus what you were doing? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, again, being like a gamer nerd and growing up, you know, seeing all these AI, you know, all this AI in the movies and everything, you know, I, I, I wanted to be involved in the development of that AI somehow. Um, and I knew that just being a programmer and programming graphic user interfaces or just making basic programs, that wasn't really going to help. Right. You know, so it, it really uh, made me think over that year and a half after undergrad, maybe I should go to grad school where I can actually work on research projects like this. Cool. So what did you do when you went to Michigan then? Um, so there I started working on um, AI projects, you know, specifically using um, evolutionary algorithms, which maybe you've heard of in the past, um, to try to build, um, you know, like little AI robots that would, say, work together towards a common task or something like that. You know, something yeah, Tell us more about that, what evolutionary algorithms do. Sure. Um, yeah. So evolutionary algorithms, uh, basically, they're trying to take the concept of evolution and use it to build something in the computer. You know, it can be another computer program. It can be, let's say, an artificial brain that can control a robot. Um, but, you know, it, it can do about anything. And, and the basic idea of an evolutionary algorithm, 
um, is we start with a group of random solutions to the problem, right? You know, so if we're trying to build a computer program, let's say, um, we'll start with a bunch of random computer programs and probably random computer programs are going to be pretty bad. So <laughs> we'll evaluate them on some certain task and we'll assign them a score. And then, you know, we have this concept of survival of the fittest, uh, where the best computer programs, they get to stick around. Uh, the, the bad ones, they sort of get culled out, you know, they get replaced. Um, the ones that do stick around, they get to reproduce. So they may swap their code. There may be random changes to them, you know, so this is mutation and crossover and, and evolutionary theory. Um, and, and then we just basically repeat this process over and over, right? You know, once we've created a new population of potential solutions, we evaluate those. We take the best ones, we build off of those and repeat over and over and over again. Um, so that's, that's the main uh, sort of evolutionary optimization algorithm that I've used for a lot of my career. Um, I used it in undergrad for my project there to try to build um, sort of a robot brain to control a, a two-legged robot, you know, just trying to walk mm -hmm. around and not fall down. Um, in grad school, I used it for to evolve sort of co cooperative behavior that's typically very difficult to manually program. Um, and I'm using it actually now at my job uh, for machine learning. Maybe we can talk more about that later. Yeah. Yeah. So take us through that time from your, your graduate school. You know, what was your thesis like and, and how did you, you know, apply what you had learned there and then, you know, moving into your career? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I think the greatest thing about my Ph.D. wasn't necessarily what I like what I did for my Ph.D., um, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, a PhD is, is more about what you learn, um, and what you learn about there that more than what you actually do. Um, because, you know, looking back, I think, I, I think I did some neat things, you know, I evolved, I, I use these evolutionary algorithms to create, you know, cooperative robots that could work together. Um, so for example, to de defend them, to defend themselves against some predator, um, mm -hmm. or, or to solve some specific sort of sorting problem or foraging problem or whatever else. Um, you know, those were all neat little applications, but um, I think what was even better about the PhD was what I learned along the way, you know? So I already knew a lot about evolutionary algorithms, but I started getting into machine learning. Um, and even on my own side projects, I started getting into uh, data analysis, data visualization. Um, and this is even before I started going the data science route. You know, I, I like mm -hmm. as a scientist, I had to analyze my experiments. I had to, you know, gather data. I had to analyze the data. I had to present the data in papers and presentations to convince people that my findings were were meaningful in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And what kind of tools were you using at that point? Um, so I I use basically C. I, I wrote all my code from scratch. So I use C for my simulations because I needed you know really fast simulations. Evolution algorithms are a bit challenging in that they're very computationally expensive, right? Because we're constantly evaluating all these solutions all the time. Um, so I use C for that, and then uh, I was turned on to Python um, very early on in my career. So once I fell into that ecosystem, you know, with with pandas and with matplotlib and all, even more you know, we have even nicer libraries nowadays in python for doing data analysis um i've basically stuck solely um, to python for doing the analysis and visualization part so what did you learn in terms of um, communication you talked about having to explain what you were working on so what did you take from grad school you know besides your thesis that really helped 
develop you into what you ended up doing for a career? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the greatest things um, about uh, Michigan State and, and the, the Beacon Center, the research institute that I was a part of there, um, was we have these weekly talks um, that you can volunteer for. Um, and basically you go up and, uh, you know, your goal is within 30 minutes to an hour to put together a story about your research and convince your colleagues there um, to, you know, about about whatever you're trying, you know, whatever you're talking about, you know, for me, it was, um, I was trying to study, um, you know, uh, behavioral, a behavioral phenomena in nature using computer models. So I had to convince them that my computer models were valid and that they were showing meaningful, showing something meaningful about, um, you know, actual animals in the wild. Um, and the greatest thing about that was that I had all my colleagues there. Many of them were not afraid to give, um, uh, uh, good feedback, you know, like at a lot of presentations, people just go, ah, that talk, that talk sucked. Let's move on. Um, so basically I was trained, you know, I, was, I had a trial through fire there, you know, I gave several talks at these meetings, um, and was, was constantly given feedback on, um, you know, how to present things, um, how to, you know, not only on the slides, but actually how to talk about these things. Um, you know, and you sort of see the shortcomings in your talk and that really, really helped, um, prepare me to, you know, to try to communicate to an even broader audience, right? Because there I was communicating with a group of people that maybe they're not doing exactly what I'm doing, but we're all studying evolution. We're all interested in the same things. We all mostly agree. Um, so that's at, so at Michigan State, is this something that they offer to the graduate students in particular? Yeah, right. So there's, there's a lot of graduate students and postdocs involved in this uh, Beacon Research Center. Um, although really it's, it's anyone, you know, professors, whoever wants to be involved in this program. Okay. And were you in classes or in these, um, in this program with Sebastian Rashka? Yeah, I was, uh, okay. um, I'm trying to think, oh man, I'd have to check this out. I don't think Sebastian and I were actually ever in a class together. He came a little, you know, like a couple years after me. So I was mostly done with classes. Um, but I mean, we, we definitely, you know, nerded out a lot together. We still nerd, he visited recently here in, in Philadelphia. Um, so we still nerd out a lot together. <laughs> Whenever and for we people can. that haven't yet heard that episode, Sebastian Roshka was interviewed on this podcast in an earlier episode. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. So, um, what, so where did you go from there, from grad school and these, uh, I think that's really cool that they offered this uh, forum for communication and, and what was next for you? Yeah, so uh, when, when I neared the end of my PhD, um, I did what a lot of grad students do is I started procrastinating. You know, it was time to write up. It was time to write my dissertation and defend my dissertation. And I started procrastinating a lot. Um, and so one, I, one thing that I discovered early on in my career was that I really, really needed to work on my communication skills. Um, and so I started this blog, which still sort of runs on my personal website. Um, mm -hmm. slash blog and so I started just finding random data sets um, and and analyzing them and visualizing them and trying to find an interesting story and I started writing blog posts whenever I did um, and so that was just really great practice for communicate also communicating to a broader audience and not even necessarily topics that were my research you know right sometimes i would take someone else's research findings and try to re-communicate them repackage them in a way that was more interesting to other people 
That's um, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, your blog is definitely how I found you because you have really informative and interesting blog posts and they're really interesting topics. So you said you just find some random data sets, but yeah. I don't think it's random. <laughs> well, so sometimes. Tell us about, um, let's talk about a couple of the projects that you did on there. What inspires you to, you know, pick a certain topic to dive into? Um, I mean, sometimes it really is random. Like, uh, uh, maybe something else we can talk about later is, is like the data is beautiful community on Reddit. Um, I'll just run across a data set on there. Maybe, maybe someone worked with the data set, found something interesting and I go, you know, maybe we can do something better with that. Or, you know, I go, oh, maybe there's something else interesting we can find in there. And so I'll find, I'll just run across the data set that way. Um, and, and decide to just go after it and see what's there. Um, you know, like that's how I, that's how I ended up with this whole series of, of chess analysis posts. Um, even though I'm, I'm definitely not a good chess player or an avid chess player by any means. <laughs> um, but yeah, a, a lot of the topics are definitely inspired by, you know, sort of, the, I guess, daily, you know, conversations, random conversations I have with friends and colleagues, you know, we'd be out at lunch and we'd be talking about something and you go, no, oh, I wonder if you can do that. Or. I wonder what the answer to this is. And we'd Google around and we wouldn't really find anything conclusive or, you know, we'd find some shaky uh, BuzzFeed listicle or something like that, you know, like nothing really formal uh, trying to address this question. Um, so I would decide, well, you know what, that'll be my weekend project. I'll try to figure this out um, and get back to you on Monday. For example, uh, one of the blog posts that started off with a conversation actually with my, with my grandfather was about working your way through college. And, um, you know, that one, I, we had a really frustrating conversation about that. You know, he seemed to think it was a great idea. I seem to think I remember it was a terrible experience. Um, and I wanted to find out why we had these differing opinions about it. And so I went and analyzed it. It changed over time. Yeah. How much college costs and what it takes to, to complete it. <laughs> right, exactly. So I made this comparison between, you know, minimum wage over time over the past 30 years versus you know, college tuition over the past 30 years. And you see, you know, this very striking trend of over the past 30 years, uh, the number of hours you have to work on minimum wage to pay off your college tuition has spiked dramatically. And that's because we've had really static wages over the past 30 years. Um, and college tuition has really, really gone up, as I think most everyone knows. Um, and textbook and, prices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Textbook prices and um, room and board and all, all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, so that was, that was one example of a post where, you know, conversation and my sort of day-to-day -day life inspired me, um, to, you know, to look into it from a data centric perspective. Did you convince him? <laughs> no, <laughs> I pointed him, I pointed him to the post, but I don't think he was interested in hearing it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> so data didn't save you that time. It, it can't, it can't always, um, but hopefully it convinced some other people, you know, I mean, I, I don't know when. When people get old enough, they get set in their ways. I mean, that, that's happening to me now at 30. So I can understand, you know, when you're 80 or 90, you don't want to hear it from a young. Um, so how did you come up with the idea for the Where's Waldo post? And tell, tell the listeners about what you did there. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so the Where's Waldo post was an attempt to get people interested in these evolutionary algorithms that I mentioned earlier. Um, I was looking, you know, I, I, I mean, Evolutionary algorithms, they're like, they're, they're really powerful. They're somewhat popular, but they're not nearly as popular as let's say deep learning or, you know, these other hot tools nowadays. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to get people interested in it and thinking about it and how they can use it. So 
I started looking around and I ran and I ran across this one post um, on slate.com that was talking about um, where's Waldo and how we can use math to basically solve where's Waldo, you know, and I I looked at it and I was like, Oh, that's kind of neat. You know, I I tried it out on one image of where's Waldo that I could find online, which by the way, anyone not familiar, where's Waldo is a, a book where every two pages is a giant chaotic scene and you have to find the little guy Waldo in that scene. And there's all kinds of things in the scene to throw you off. Yeah. He's always wearing like a red and white striped shirt and hat. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I, I spent way too many hours as a, as a kid looking through those books, you know, trying to find Waldo. And it's, it's, it's actually a lot more fun just to look at the random scenes rather than actually look for Waldo. But, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of latched onto this idea, you know, I was like, oh, this is a cool idea. You know, we could use math, uh, to help us find Waldo. Um, you know, this, this pressing challenge that, that, uh, so many of us, uh, kids faced <laughs> when we were younger. Um, and, and, but I looked at it and I said, you know, I bet we could, I bet we could do better. You know, I bet we could use an evolutionary algorithm, uh, to find an even better method. So, that's basically what I set out to do. Um, Slate had, uh, the, the authors at Slate had already done some of the legwork. They had gone through all the books and actually gotten the locations of where Waldo was in each of the books. So I just sort of grabbed that data set and, and I decided to treat it as uh, what we call in computer science a traveling salesman problem. So mm-hmm. a traveling salesman problem is basically a challenge where you have, um, in the classical problem, you have a bunch of cities that you want to visit. Um, but you, and you only want to visit each city once and you want to visit each city once in the shortest path possible, right? So you want to spend the least amount of money on, on gas uh, driving or whatever else um, to get to all, all the points you need to stop at. Um, and so I thought, you know, that made sense to me for Waldo, right? Is if we have a sense of where he's going to be, we can sort of treat finding Waldo as a traveling salesman problem, right? We want to find the, the places on the page that Waldo can possibly be um, and scan across those pages as quickly as possible. You know, so basically mm-hmm. what parts of the page can we ignore? Um, so I used an evolutionary algorithm to solve that, which is one way to solve the traveling salesman problem. Um, and, and maybe, you know, we can put up an image here or something like that to show the final mm-hmm. solution that it found. Um, but basically it found this interesting path along the page. Um, yeah, if I remember right, it's starting at somewhere around the bottom left corner moving to the bottom right corner, um, going up uh, sort of across the middle of the page. This is totally going to be backwards as I move my hand along. But anyway, <laughs> maybe I should try to adjust. Um, yeah, you know, so I found this relatively short path. And that if and I found that if you follow that, if you look along the page in the actual books, uh, you can usually find Waldo within about 10 seconds or so, which is a huge okay. improvement upon the random search that most of well, us yeah. follow, you know. <laughs> so, so what you were doing wasn't some sort of image recognition to find Waldo. You were taking the optimal path out of knowing where the Waldo, where Waldo usually ended up to, to make sure you could come to the location the quickest. Right, exactly. I was, I was basically trying to take advantage of the fact that these, these Where's Waldo diagrams are designed by a human. Humans mm-hmm. have human biases, so we can use machine learning. We can use evolutionary algorithms to discover those biases and sort of bias our search of where we look um, and, to, and to discover those sort of hot spots in the Where's Waldo pages. Yeah. It would also be cool to do some sort of generative algorithm using how Waldo scenes usually look and have a computer generate new Waldo scenes. <laughs> Ooh, we could probably do that with deep learning or something. That could be really cool. 
That's a good Just idea. Out there, do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make it happen, Maybe please. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> There's actually web tools out there for that. That could be pretty easy to do. Hmm. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> don't be don't, don't be surprised if you see a new blog post soon. <laughs> was that the same approach you used for your um, going through all the different national parks on a road trip? Post? Yeah, pretty much. Short. So shortly after, like a couple of few days after that, Where's Waldo post went out, which it, it was a it was a big hit. I was really surprised, right? Because it seemed like the silliest thing to me, um, but it was something fun fun to do on a on a snowy Michigan weekend. It's fun um, and nerdy. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to me. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and and um, a reporter reached out to me, uh, Tracy Setter, and she said, you know, hey, this, uh, you know, this this traveling salesman problem sounds a lot like um, something a challenge that we face whenever we're designing road trips, right? You know, like maybe we'll have a bunch of cool locations in mind, um, but we don't really know the best way to drive them, right? So we'll sit there and Google Maps or or whatever mapping tool we use um, and sort of swap out the locations and try to find the shortest path or the best path or whatever else um, to drive to get to all those locations. So she said, can you use that same algorithm to design sort of an ultimate road trip around the U.S.? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, That sounds like a really, really cool idea. Um, Let's give it a shot. And so Tracy put together a really great list of, you know, like a, a iconic location in each state. Um, except for Hawaii and Alaska, because those are, well, Hawaii is really hard to, to drive to. Alaska is mm-hmm. kind of hard to drive to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we left those two states out. But so, the, you know, the lower 48, and then I optimized a route using Google Maps uh, to uh, to drive around to all those locations. And so that, yeah, that what turned What kind of out. tools did you use for that? Uh, yeah, so I use, um, for the analysis itself, I, I use Python, of course, uh, being mm-hmm. a Python junkie. Um, so I had a, a custom implementation of, a, of an evolutionary algorithm that I had written. Um, Google Maps actually has a Python API. Um, so you can put in two locations and say, you know, I want driving directions in kilometers between these two, and it will find sort of the shortest driving path. Um, so I used the Google Maps API uh, through Python. What else did I use? Um, to actually, once I had the actual path, um, Google Google Maps also has this nice JavaScript API, API for visualizing paths on a Google Map. Um, so I used Python to generate the code for that, which was also fun. You know, it's always a fun exercise using code to generate yet more code, but it worked. Yeah. Um, cool. And so, yeah, so uh, the, what came out of that was an HTML document that you could open up and then it would visualize that whole path for you on a Google Map. Um, so, yeah, it was a pr- pretty simplistic pipeline, actually. Um, and I was surprised that no one had tried it before. Yeah. So is it generalized now that you can put in any set of points and it'll run through them? Yeah. Um, on my GitHub, I have a, I have a notebook on there that you can go to. Um, and basically at the beginning of the notebook, you know, I say in this Python list, put strings of wherever you want to go, you know, whether it's geolocations or names of places or whatever else, just plug it in there and then run the rest of the code and out pops the map the path for you. It'll automatically optimize it for you. Very cool. So let's talk about one more post. I saw one just go up recently about looking at how um, Madden NFL game rates the different players. Yeah. So can you walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah. So uh, like over time on my blog, like I started with, you know, 
basic data analysis. You know, take a data set, maybe do some stats, maybe do some visualization. And now I'm really trying to move towards machine learning. Um, so, you know, like we saw with the road trip optimization stuff and um, this Madden one is actually um, trying to do like pure machine learning. So basically, um, I've really gotten into playing the, the Madden NFL game lately, um, especially the, um, the franchise mode where you build a team and you... Uh, you know, you play through games with them and then, you you know, you're constantly trying to you know get to the Super Bowl to build a better team. Yada, yada, try to compete with teams like, you know, juggernauts like the Patriots and stuff like that. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, this is American football. Yes, video games. American <laughs> football, that's right. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, like oftentimes on the on the Reddit forums, uh, well, well, on the Madden Reddit forums specifically. You know, we'll, we'll try to share tips with each other on, you know, oh, you should definitely use this player. You know, he's he's a really good player, but he's underrated by Madden. Um, or you should use this player, but use him in a different position. You know, maybe instead of a receiver, he should be a running back or something like that um, because he's way better at that position. Um, and so it's sort of been word of mouth that, that we've found these things and that we've shared, you know, shared these findings. And I, so I, I wanted to build a tool. I wanted to use machine learning to automatically do this. So I found out that the Madden NFL people um, actually share their ratings data. And so I wanted to start out by learning how do they actually calculate those ratings um, based off of, um, you know, these people's skills. And so the, the, the Madden folks have gone way out of their way to get, assign a numerical representation of every NFL player's skills, you know, whether it's their throwing power or their running ability their catching ability and yada, 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 you know, their, their tendency to get injured, even you know all kinds of crazy things. And so I wanted to see if I could use machine learning to discover the underlying sort of hidden equations to that, you know, um, so, so using the results that they make public and trying to extrapolate how they came up with this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, which that, that on itself is kind of interesting, you know, cause, um, you know, it, it found some things that we all kind of knew, you know, that like the awareness skill is really plays a big factor for quarterback throwing ability is really important, you know, things like that. Um, but what's particularly interesting to me is what's actually going to be coming out soon. As soon as I get off my butt and write the post up is I use that model to then find sort of these hidden gem players, you know, players that are underrated by Madden, um, but actually play will play well above their ability in the game. Um, so you're doing money ball for <laughs> basically. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And along those lines, like what players are better at another position, you know, some players like they just get put in the tight end position or something like that. And they're really terrible there, but they would be a better running back or, or wide receiver. Um, and so I'm going to be, you know, compiling a list and publishing a list of these players to switch out and basically trying to money ball. It, yeah. Um, and I think, I think this is a really promising, um, project because it can we can slowly build this up, um, you know, to help people. Like you know, that's it's a really Madden is a really competitive um, uh, online football scene, you know. So it can help people who maybe don't want to spend, you know, five hundred dollars on on building a football team. They can put mm -hmm. together a cheap team that will play really well, you know. So so that really will be like money balling it then, <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. So I see a lot of what you do on your blog, but then when I learned about what you do professionally, it seemed like a little bit of a disconnect to me. So explain how you got into your current role and tell everyone what you do there. 
Sure. Um, yeah. So, so like I said, um, this whole blogging tangent uh, <laughs> that I went on, um, that I started at the, at the end of my degree, it, it, it gave me sort of a broader perspective on the field, you know, because I had been really into my AI research and that's all I wanted to do. Um, but I finally graduated. Um, and by that time, I, I had built up, you know, like quite a following on Twitter and on my blog and on Reddit and all these other places. Um, and so when it came time to graduate, I had a lot of people reaching out to me, you know, giving, you know, saying, Hey, come interview here. You know, of course, Google and, and all those companies were sending out their invites to come interview and I interviewed at some of those places. Um, but yeah, uh, the job I ended up with now, I actually, um, I met my boss, uh, through Twitter. Um, wow. so yeah, it was, and I actually got my job offer through Twitter too. That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, I, I never thought that would happen, but yeah, we, yeah, all those people that say we're just wasting time on social media. They right? have no idea. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> it, it really can be worthwhile if you, if you, you know, put the right effort into it. Um, so yeah, like, uh, we, my, my, who was going to be my future boss, uh, at the time we, we were attending a conference together. Um, and we were live tweeting the conference and, and we found out we had a lot of the same interests. And so we met at the conference, you know, we chatted very briefly and we kept in touch through Twitter over the years throughout my PhD. So when it came time to graduate, you know, he heard about, you know, that, that I was, uh, well, that I was actually thinking of leaving academia, you know, becoming a full-time data scientist. Um, and he said, well, Hey, why don't you come interview to work in my lab? Um, you know, we, I mean, even though it's a very different applications area, you know, it's not necessarily like pure AI research anymore. You know, we're applying machine learning algorithms to, um, study complex diseases in humans, which is a pretty cool application. He said, yeah. come, come give it a try, you know, come interview and see how you like it. Um, and so I ended up, you know, accepting the position there and, um, it's, it's been a really interesting transition because I, I still get to take a lot of the skills I picked up in my PhD. You know, I still get to, uh, you know, I use machine learning. I use evolutionary algorithms on, you know, if not a daily, a weekly basis. Um, I'm still analyzing data, uh, still visualizing data all the time, still writing research papers and things like that. But now it's just a different topic, you know, so. And what is the lab called? Uh, it's the epistasis lab. Um, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so, you know, if you're familiar with the term, that basically betrays that we focus on genetic analysis, you know, trying to understand the, gene the genetics underlying um, uh, complex traits and, and diseases, things like that. Wow. Yeah. It's, so do you get to um, experience the university at all in terms of teaching, or are you mostly just focused on the lab? You know, what's your experience been like so far? Um, well, so basically I, I did a year and a half postdoc there and then I transitioned into this senior data scientist role. Um, and I, I would say for the most part, I haven't been, you know, I've, I haven't really taught a class. I've, I've done some guest lectures. I've taught some workshops and things like mm -hmm. that. But um, I mean, I would say mostly, you know, my teaching has been limited to that, you know, a talk or a guest lecture or something like that. Uh, I'm really mostly focused on, on research um, and mentoring. So, you know, whether it's, it's students in the lab or, you know, postdocs or other people in the lab, um, that, that's mostly been my, my teaching experience there. You know, we have a lot of people coming in that have, 
a really extensive background in biology, you know, whether it's genetics or epidemiology or something like that, but maybe they don't have that deep expertise in machine learning or programming or whatever else. And so that's basically what I'm there for now is, is to help train them on that and help bring them up to speed on um, the latest practices in machine learning and programming and all that good stuff. And what has that been like partnering with people that aren't other data scientists? Oh, it's great. Um, I mean, I mean, even though we don't, so I, we don't naturally talk the same language, you know, um, mm -hmm. and that's one of the biggest things I learned in my PhD. You know, I tried to collaborate with, well, I did collaborate with, uh, with biologists and the biggest thing you have to do is you have to learn that new language, you know, right. um, the domain expertise. Yeah. The domain expertise and how to, how to, you know, use their jargon, um, and it, it was a bit confusing coming into like, you know, genetics and epidemiology because, um, you know, they sort of, they, they definitely use statistics, they use some machine learning, but they also sort of have their own unique language um, that, that conflicts with, with like machine learning people, you know, so. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. Yeah, so we have a lot, we have many different words for the same thing, you know, like we have... Mm -hmm. Gosh, I think six or so different terms for, you know, the idea of a feature or a variable or whatever you want to call it. You know, there's so many different ways we, we call that term. I don't know why we don't just agree on one. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so I, I had to learn that terminology and I'm still learning that terminology. But otherwise, it's, it's been a really nice transition. Um, it's especially nice sort of um, breaking out of the box of like the core methods development and really trying to apply those method methods to real problems. Um, that's been a, a really nice experience, although it's also a huge challenge, you know, because um, when we do methods development, we often work with well-known problems or simulated data sets. And now we're working with the real world, you know, the like real complex diseases, you know, data from real people. Um, and my goodness, that's a unique challenge <laughs> right there. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, right? <laughs> and, a, and a lot of data cleaning, a lot of data cleaning. Yeah. Well, when you're in your mentoring role, uh, what do you find are the biggest challenges that the students have, or where do you, you feel the need to guide them the most? Oh, um, gosh. Well, I mean, so, um, Typically, uh, students don't really get uh, a, a, like a deeper understanding of the machine learning algorithms that they're using, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so actually what we do is on a weekly basis, we get together and we say, we're going to learn this algorithm. You know, we're going to learn gradient tree boosting today or something like that. And we really, really, we spend a, you know, an hour or sometimes more really digging into the details of how do those algorithms actually work, you know, because a lot of students, they get a superficial understanding of it, they'll maybe have a very high level understanding and they'll know either how to press the buttons in Weka or they'll know how to, you know, use this, you know, program it up in scikit-learn or something like that, but they won't know what they're actually doing with that algorithm. Um, so that's definitely been one big thing that I often end up training students with. Um, another one is just how, is, is the general approach to a data science problem. You know, like once you get a data set, what do you do after that? That's actually one of the big things that whenever I'm interviewing a student or a candidate, I'll actually sit down and have them walk me through their typical approach to a data science problem. Um, I often find myself, I mean, that's one of the earliest things I try to teach people is, um, you know, how do you actually approach a data science problem? How do you tackle it? Uh, what are your concerns with the data coming in and all these other things? Um, 
And then, of course, uh, one thing I always find myself teaching people is just like good programming practices. Um, you know, a lot of people nowadays, especially if it's not, if they're not taking computer science, or if they're not studying computer science, they're really not learning how to actually program. You know, like a lot of classes, they want to focus on the concepts of things, but they don't teach you things like version control, which is mm-hmm. insane to me. You know, that's like version control is one of the biggest things that I use. You know, it's been a lifesaver for me multiple times. Um, yeah, and when you're working with teams, that becomes really important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so there's some really core concepts like that um, that don't that really don't seem to get taught at all um, in in university classes, and so I end up you know bringing them up to speed on that too, and that and that ends up being you know pretty huge for them. I've had multiple students who went on to full time jobs tell me you know like. Oh my God, I now understand all these things you taught me. They're so useful. You know, <laughs> um, you know I thought I lost all my scripts or I thought, you know, uh, or whatever else. And it's all backed up nicely on GitHub or whatever else, you know, um, or, or, you know, I understand this more efficient way of coding now. Thanks to you. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's little things like that that unfortunately don't get taught in classes that you usually end up learning through internships instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier working with um, people on Reddit with like information is beautiful and some of the other uh, Reddit groups that you work with. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So um, I, I've been pretty heavily involved in the, in the data is beautiful community on Reddit, um, which if you're not, if, if, yeah, if, if, if you're not familiar with data is beautiful, basically it's a um, online forum dedicated to data visualization, you know, data analysis and data visualization. So people will link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Um, yeah, basically the idea is, is people share links to data visualizations. Sometimes they even share their own data visualizations. They discuss them, you know, sometimes they critique them and try to figure out how to, how to improve them. Um, and that, that was actually hugely influential, you know, early on in my, you know, when I was procrastinating on my PhD, I would post my analyses there and people would give really nice, really nice feedback. Usually, (laughs) you know, of course you always get people who are really negative too, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you learn to take Always. that. Yeah, you learn to take that with stride. I mean, that's just a part of being on the internet, I guess. Um, but yeah, I found that to be tremendously um, useful to have a community that was interested in data analysis and data visualization, that was interested in what I was doing and wanted to give feedback. Um, and so that's something that I always recommend to people as well is to, you know, work on these little pet projects and share them, get feedback. You'll be amazed at, 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 you know, sometimes you'll get really useful, constructive feedback from that. And that's one thing that we're trying to do with the Data Science Learning Club, too, is just have a lot of different people go through a similar process and see what comes out and then get feedback and explain what you did. So, yeah, that's, a, that's, yeah, that's very a great important. idea. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Randy. Yeah, glad to be here. Really glad to chat with you. And um, tell us how we can find you online. Um, yeah, you can find me at multiple places. Um, you can find me on my website, randallolson.com. Um, just be careful if you like Google Randall Olson, cause there is another Randy Olson out there. who's a filmmaker. That's not me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm also not that old. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't watch this now. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Randall underscore Olson there, um, on GitHub. Um, I'm not going to spell that one out. I have a weird name on there, but maybe we can link, we can link to it. Um, on LinkedIn, Facebook, all that good stuff. So there's plenty of places to reach out to me if you're interested in anything. You're everywhere. Yeah, I try to be. (laughs) And people can also support you on Patreon. Yes, of course. Yeah. I have a nice little tip bucket there if you're interested in supporting me. 
Well, your blog is really cool and I've learned a lot from it and I'm sure people will learn a lot by following all your links and finding you online. So awesome. I encourage people to do that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Randy. Thanks. There are actually even more resources that Randy wanted to share that we didn't get to cover in the interview. So be sure to check out the show notes at becomingadatascientist.com to learn more. Now we'll hear from our sponsor, do a few announcements, and then get to the Data Science Learning Club activity. First, let me tell you about our sponsored DataCamp. This episode is sponsored by DataCamp. DataCamp has free and beginner-friendly introductory data science courses in both R and Python, and then a low-cost subscription option that gets you access to some pretty incredible classes, like importing and cleaning data in R, data visualization with ggplot2, statistical modeling with R, introduction to data visualization with Python, Pandas Foundations, and many others. I viewed some of their classes myself, and I really like their approach. And DataCamp is also currently the highest rated beginner content on my Data Sci Guide site. There's also a DataCamp community with a blog and tutorials. Thanks to DataCamp for sponsoring this episode. You should go to datacamp.com today and check them out. Our first announcement is that we now have Becoming a Data Scientist t-shirts. Yeah. So go to becomingadatascientist.com and you should see t-shirts blog post as one of the first few at the top. So thank you to Amar Reddy and Ryan Belliston and his wife Alexis for participating in the contest and helping design the shirt. I'm really happy with how it came out. I will post a Teespring discount link when this episode comes out, which will get you free shipping through the end of March. So go get your shirt now. And if you don't want a shirt, there are also mugs that say Becoming a Data Scientist Podcast and Learning Club. They're just white coffee mugs. Oh, and there are kid-sized shirts too. So you can outfit yourself and the budding young data scientist in your household. Secondly, if you want to support Becoming a Data Scientist, Data Sci Guide, and Jobs for New Data Scientists, I now have a small team of helpers that are working to help me get those sites updated, Sophia, Javel, and Stephanie. If you want to support our work, which provides you with learning resources, job postings, and other stuff, please support us at patreon.com slash becomingdatasci. Even a dollar a month helps, and all supporters will get my monthly newsletter with updates and more resources. Next, I want to apologize for never posting the Learning Club activity for the previous episode, the one where you were supposed to record yourself explaining an analysis and post it for feedback. That is totally my bad. I will create the forum along with the one for this episode. I'm going to renumber the activities too, so the activity numbers line up with the podcast episode numbers. So this one will be activity 16. This time, the Data Science Learning Club activity is to learn all about genetic algorithms, what we talked to Randy Olson about. I'll post some links to get you started, and please share your favorite resources as well. If you want to give it a try, I'll link to Randy's road trip project on GitHub. You can either implement your own version of his road trip code or use the genetic algorithm approach to solve another similar problem. This should be fun. So I'm sorry for the delay in getting this episode posted. I have two more great interviews already recorded and we'll post them very soon. So thank you so much for listening to the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. This is Renee Teet and I'll see you soon. Thank you.